Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Christina Gagnon, was born at 25 weeks in 1986. The fact that she is alive is testimony to the enormous skill of the doctors and nurses who looked after her as an infant. She's therefore very well placed to say what in medicine works well and where we can improve the outcomes. Here to tell us her story is Christina Gagnon. Christina, you're very welcome to this call. I'm absolutely honoured to spend the time with you. So welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Thank you so much, Moyes. Thanks for having me. You were born in 1986, at 25 weeks gestation, which in many ways effectively makes you a miracle because for someone to survive that early at that time in history is quite astonishing. So first thing to acknowledge, you are a miracle. I was born at, um, at one pound, eight ounces on October 30th, 1986. And I had a 14% chance of living. I battled with a, a lot of high-risk things with me. My mom had a hole in the placenta. And I was losing a lot of nutrition. And I also was a twin, but I was the strongest of the two, and I was the one that survived. So after I was born, I was immediately rushed in, into the NICU, and doctors started helping me. My mother was sedated from a C-section. And right then from there, I was under doctor's care. I, I couldn't even be in my parents' arms. And not until like two weeks until, I, um, until after I was born. So I had necrotizing enterocolitis three times. And that is a highly deadly stomach disease where your intestines are rotting, basically, and they're beginning to die. And I had that three times along with PDA ligation. So I had to have open heart surgery when I was two weeks old. And I had a collapsed lungs 44 times as well. So it was a lot for me, two weeks old. And, you know, having jaundice as well as most babies have jaundice. There was a lot of a trial and error going on with me because there wasn't the technology that there is today. There was a lot of trial and error. Let's see where this goes. Let's see how she takes this and we'll go from there. We often say in medicine that when the patient is in dire straits, medicine seems to step up it seems to really respond it's very much like all the king's horses and all the king's men come together and they do what they can to get the patient well was that your family's impression at the time how were they feeling even as you were lying there in the NICU they were terrified all of them were terrified and at the time, my sister was four, and so it was tough because she she would be there sometimes, but she would be there for like 30 minutes or so, 
it would be tough for a very young child for that to see. Um, but otherwise, uh, they were horribly terrified, not knowing what the outcome was. They didn't really have a lot of support coming from other family members because they were scared. They also were scared. And they, they didn't like uh, the whole medical jargon. My parents were throwing at them. They were tired of it. And um, yeah, they would ask, oh, how I was doing all that. But they really wouldn't see me at the hospital as much. So it was basically my parents supporting each other. And it was very emotional. It was quite the roller coaster. As my main NICU doctor pointed to uh, my parents, and it still is even now with all the medical issues I still have today. Just going back to that time, the medical team will have included some extraordinarily talented physicians, nurses, who would have been doing everything they could to get you through necrotizing enterocolitis and to deal with your patent ductus arteriosus and then in other things that you were experiencing. Did anyone turn to your parents and say, this is what's happening, this is what the plan is, how are you feeling, how are yes. you coping? They did tell my mom, they said, you need to relax, have some me time. And my mom wouldn't, she wouldn't sit down. She was with them 24-7, writing notes, asking questions. She knew my file. She knew how to read my file. And she had this notebook of all of the uh, medical terminology and things that were going on with me. And she would uh, relay to the doctors with it. Some didn't like it because they were threatened about her using the medical terms. And some were really impressed with my mom. So that was a 50-50 with that. But when it comes to me and medical stuff, my mom was quite the advocate. And she still is the advocate for me, even today at, 30, um, at 36. Your issues with having been born that early continued for many years afterwards. What happened after you left the NICU and your progress as a young child? started school at two years old because if I didn't, I would fall back mentally. And so I was put on a school bus at two years old. And I went to a school with kids who were disabled like me at a hospital. And I got help that way. And then we moved to Orlando, Florida. I started daycare there. And it was tough because I was at another school for kids who were disabled as well. But then I also had to have surgery when I was five, a major surgery done because of my right anterior thigh had a keloid on it. And every single time I would grow, there would be some blood coming out and I would have to have a uh, major surgery done. So in the summer of 1991, I had that surgery conducted, and um, it was very terrifying for me at five. And that all uh, related to PTSD after the surgery. So it was tough because also even after the surgery with the recovery, I had to relearn how to walk that summer. And I had to go into kindergarten that August. And then the kids would, would um, 
would know that I would be uncomfortable still from the uh, surgery and they'd like uh, they would like kind of like um slap my butt because I had a skin revision done so they, they they knew I was uncomfortable and I was also very angry growing up not just as a, as a as a toddler but I was angry because I was confused and I wondered why it was happening to me I was cheated out of my childhood because I was always going to doctor's appointments and having medicine taken or blood drawn. And I didn't really have a lot of time with my friends playing outside on my bike or playing with chalk. I was cheated from my childhood and I was angry, very angry. I'm so sorry that it happened that way for you. And I want to take I want to go back to something you said earlier you described your experience at five years old having this keloid removed as traumatizing you describe you use the term PTSD why did it happen that way well because it was unexpected unknown I had no idea what was happening I had this oxygen mask on my face I had tears coming down I was scared because my mom was outside of the OR and feeling funny from the medication. I had no idea what was going on. I was panicking. And then all of a sudden, I fall asleep. And I wake up all, all feeling dizzy and not right. Because when you're five, you, you can't really describe how you're feeling like you can when, when you're an adult it's more difficult to explain to adults when you're five it's hard to put into words this was in 1991 not 1951 so you would imagine that certainly the hospital that was doing this pediatric surgery was trained to look after children in those circumstances how is it that it failed you? I wouldn't say it, it failed me. It, it never failed me at all. Because I was with kids um, that were like me. I had no issues with that because I'm also physically disabled as well. I, I lost um, all my um, toes on my left foot due to gangrene when I was an infant. So I thought I was at the right place. Was there somebody working with you to give you any comfort around the procedure? There were some nurses, and before the surgery, there was a, a little, like, puppets that gave us an kind of like, not really an introduction, but things that were going to happen. And they, they showed us with the medical equipment that was going to happen. Like, this is an oxygen mask. This is what the doctor wears things like that, to prep us to what was going to happen. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. But somehow you still felt traumatized by the experience. Yeah, absolutely. 
Even now, I'm I'm so traumatized by it. In fact, I had a dream about it last night. I because it is something like PTSD. It never goes away. You can't just shut it off, like like you turning off a light. Imagine that you today were advising a hospital about the care of a five-year-old who is coming in to have the same surgery. What would you say to them? to avoid the situation where that five-year-old felt traumatized? I don't know what I would say. I think it's based on everybody's own experience on, on what they would experience because everybody's, everybody's different. For me, it was terrifying, but, you know, maybe for another five-year-old, it's not. That was a, a really good question. I, I like that question. What happened subsequently so once you had that surgery at five years old you obviously you'll have had more more doctor's appointments more surgery since then i'm fine now i just roll with it it's like okay here's another surgery i'm fine the one that really bothered me was when i was five but otherwise other surgeries that i've had it's just a piece of cake i get a little nervous before surgery but i just I'm just like, okay, let's do this. I'll be fine. I realize there's nothing to be scared of because you're with doctors and nurses that that know how to take care of people. It's their job. They're they're certified to do this. So um, you're in the best hands ever possible when you're with doctors and nurses surgically. What is it that makes that so what is it that makes the experience positive and safe for people? Can you think what the elements are that make that experience good? I'm being taken care of. Their medical knowledge and that I know that with whatever problem I have, I know I'm going to be taken care of, whether it's with medication or with the surgery or just being seen by them for a small issue. Just by seeing them, I know I'm taken care of. I feel better. There's no more anxiety. It all goes away. Let's um, a lot of weight off the shoulders. If you were to think about other experiences where you have to rely on an expert, whether that's a teacher or a lawyer or somebody else, what is it that distinguishes the relationship with the doctor? What is it that makes them seem much more caring or much more across what's going on? I think it's the level of trust. What brings about that feeling of trust? Because you're dealing with your whole body when it comes to a doctor, not necessarily like a teacher or a lawyer, but you're giving your whole self, your whole life into that doctor's hands. And you have to automatically trust them that they're going to do their job correctly and efficiently and not mess up. That's from your side that you are trusting of them. How, how is it that they create that feeling in you? I, I think it's because I've seen so, I've had so many doctors and I continue to have so many doctors. I'm, um, I'm used to, to having that feeling when it comes to me finding a new doctor, I'm very, very picky on who I 
I see. I usually check their um their medical background, like what schools they went to, if it's a really good medical school, and if they had a really good fellowship or residency to make sure it's one of the top medical residencies or fellowships that they really know what they're doing in their field. Are there other things that you immediately are taking note of as you spend time initially with with that doctor? Yes, that they're uh, that they're very friendly and warm. That they have a good bedside manner. Because I've had doctors, one or two of them, that have been very icy cold. It's just a turn off, and it's like okay, this doctor. I don't like this doctor because they don't seem caring and welcoming and warming. A doctor is a trusted friend almost. Uh, I feel like doctors are there to help you. They deserve to be uh, warm and welcoming with you, not cold. So if you were to describe to somebody else what that warm and friendliness how that comes across, what would you say? What are the things that they should notice when they're meeting their doctor for the first time? With like a handshake and a smile and say, oh, it's nice to meet you and things like that. You know, just, just something simple like that. And sometimes they might strike a conversation with you that's not medical related, asking how your family is or how your life hobbies, whatever that's doing. I I had a um, physician who was like that, and she was just nice, just generally nice. I really liked liked that because it wasn't just medicinal. It was something different. That's what I liked about her. It wasn't just one thing. Talk about some of the experiences that aren't so good. Where does it fall down? It's probably not in the credentials because most doctors that you would see would have good credentials that would come from a good school and they would be highly qualified if they're dealing with somebody who was born at 25 weeks with all these complexities. So what are the things that make you stop and say, I'm not sure about you? What are those things? Usually when doctors just don't even knock on the door, they just open up the door, don't even say hello. They just say, okay, hi, I'm doctor, whomever, and they just start. Or they might just come on in and say, all right, let's get to business. It's just a turnoff. I had this one doctor when I was at Shriners for a checkup on, on my scar, and he was a filling doctor. And he was terrible. He was cold. He looked over at my scar. And he didn't really say much. We t- briefly talked about doing another surgery. And my mother was in the room at the time. And he just flat out said this to me. And I was 14 at the time. He said, okay, well, she's too fat to have the surgery. And I admit, I was a little heavy at the time. But to say that in front of a patient who's young, and it's just, it's wrong. You just, you don't say that. My mother was furious with him. 
she talked to the chief of the uh, hospital and and uh, he was not happy about that and he noticed that that what, what had happened and how the man was just a visiting doctor but still it was just inappropriate behavior to say that in front of a patient he made me cry immediately cry and my mother's like okay Christina you need to leave the room for a minute I'm like okay I'm like okay and, and to make a patient cry right in front of you it's terrible no patient deserves to be treated like that the journal of health design fostering collaboration amplifying the voice of health advocates growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Tell us a little bit about your mom and her advocacy. What was that like and how comforting was it to have somebody like that supporting you? My mother's been an advocate for me since day one, since the second I was born. She's very, she's someone who's very feisty and uh, she's someone who won't stop. Like I said before, with me when I was a baby, she gave me unconditional love and support. My father and um, my grandparents did too. But with her, though, she stayed with me at the hospital from like all hours of the morning and she wouldn't leave. She wouldn't have me time. She wouldn't even have time for postpartum depression. She's like, you know what? I don't have the time for, for postpartum depression. I have time to take care of my daughter who's sick. I need to take care of her. She did it all for me. She risked it all for me. And taking care of my, my sister at the time, who was also a toddler. She's always been there for me, and I've always been there for her, and she's my best friend. Along with me having the surgery done at Strider's, she asked the, the uh, surgeon when I was put out from, from the medicine, she said, how am I supposed to take care of Christina if I don't see being, what's being watched? And he let her go into the OR and, and get dressed. And he said, now you can't say anything, but I'll let you come up to the operating table. You can see what I'm doing. And he, he did let her go up to, uh, to the operating table to see what was being done to me, seeing the very intricate uh, medical utensil was being used on me, along with blood being quite present. And um, there were times where she felt like she was going to pass out, but she never did. And she stood by there with me when I was under um, anesthesia. And she uh, she said it was the most difficult thing for her to witness after the surgery. And she said one time after it was done, after I was resting, she, she was in the restroom just crying. And she said, you know what? I, she said, God, you know what? Why are you taking her piece by piece? Just, just take me. She's been through so much already. Why are you doing this? My mom is just a warrior, and she's still a warrior, even for me, because now she has her medical things being um, that, that's bothering her, and I have mine, 
So we're taking care of each other. And that's what I love about her. She's taking care of me forever. And now it's my turn to take care of her. And that's and that's what I love. And, and plus, we have a very special close bond. You clearly do. And you make a mighty pair. You looking after your mom and your mom having advocated for you and continuing to advocate for you all of these years. Christina, it's been a joy spending time with you. You've taught us an awful lot about what really matters in medicine. And for that, we give you all of our thanks. And I look forward to another conversation very soon. Absolutely. I would love to have another conversation with you, Dr. Jiwa. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.